New King James Version with the one exception, and that is the heading, um, which is actually verse 1 in the Septuagint. Um, and I'll be doing that out of the Septuagint and then going into what would be verse 1 in the New King James. It says, or God's Word declares, for the end, regarding the wine presses, the Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. We come to this psalm, and we are transitioning now from one kind of psalm into another set, as we're going to see in the next few psalms. And this one directs our attention now to that which we, which we come to God extolling him, uh, for his work in our midst and uh, in history. And we're going to see some of these are going to, some of these psalms go all the way back into creation as this one. Others will go back into the history of Israel, for example, the Exodus and things like that. And certainly what we find consistently in God's word is that when God does spectacular things for his people, the response of that is song. So when you get to the end of the crossing of the Red Sea, what do you find? You find the song of Miriam. You, you find that song there uh, that the horse and rider fell into the sea, that God destroyed our enemies, and we have a lengthy psalm in response to God's work. And so as we go through that, it is appropriate that as God works in our life that we respond with that sort of praise. And this is uh, such a nature, and it is appropriate that this kind of psalm uh, this is our first real introduction to this kind of a psalm uh, here. Uh, it goes back to the original work of God in our regard, and that is to creation itself, in that we respond to recognize creation. And this is not unusual in your hymn book. In fact, some of the earliest hymns in our hymn book are directed that way, that we consider uh, the creation around us and, and uh, exalt the name of the Lord in response to that. And so the psalmist is going to do that. We're going to see him looking at several um, uh, arenas of creation, um, but it is culminating really in the creation and the image-bearing quality of man. And this is kind of, I, I could not have picked a better week for this if I had tried. Uh, we have just completed our Sunday night study on the, on the nature of man, and that uh, study on what image-bearing involves, we come to a chapter at the conclusion that we will not have a study tonight. And so really to summarize and again uh, declare the nature of this, of this uh, uniqueness of man among all of creation. Uh, we're also going to be looking at this in a messianic manner 
Uh, obviously, it's used by Christ uh, on uh, the very day of his triumphal entry, also called Palm Sunday, which if you believe that the new moon is a full moon, today would be Palm Sunday. Uh, if we, I know it's going to be next week for most everybody, but this week or last week, uh, would be Palm Sunday if you believe if if we follow that um, biblical description of what a full moon or what a new moon is, is a full moon, then that would be today. And so we're going to be looking at Christ's declaration to his enemies, and the enemies are lit, described here in this psalm uh, on the day of his triumphal entry of Palm Sunday. And so we're going to find all of this come together. We come to Psalm 8 and we find an opportunity to consider the glory of our Lord in His creation. And that creation is focused not only, usually we think about, all oh, the sun, moon, stars, the mountains, uh, rivers, things like that. And that certainly is described here, but that is not the focal point of this chapter. We make much about that, but that's not really His focus here whatsoever. He's going to very quickly move us to um, man. And in the, in the comparison between all the rest and the majesty of all the rest and uh, how it suddenly uh, comes very personal, intimate in the creation of man and what God has done far beyond what he has done for the rest of creation. And so we find that Jesus Christ is going to use this passage. He's going to use it in the triumphal entry. He's going to communicate uh, that uh, and quote from this very chapter on that occasion. We often think that if we talk too highly of the nature of man being in the image of God, that somehow we detract from the glory of God. And we're going to actually see that historically in this passage and how it has been handled. But the psalmist rightly understands that when we study man and his very nature and how God made him, it is to his glory and not to man's glory. It is very humbling to consider what God has invested in mankind that is not shared by any other aspect of creation that uh, recognizing the responsibility that is placed upon our shoulders. And that is not something that we take credit for, for certainly that is something God has placed upon us by His grace, His power, and for His purposes. And so the psalmist begins by reflecting on the excellence of the name of the Lord in all the earth. And we find where his glory is set. And that is where it is uninterrupted, where it is undefiled, if you will. He says that the, your glory is set above the heavens. And so we understand that there is a transcendency. There is a distinction between God and the rest of creation. That is that God, that this chair isn't God, that tree isn't God, that mountain isn't God. We sometimes almost get that way when we talk about uh looking at nature to reflect upon the power and the attributes of God. And certainly Romans tells us that the attributes of God are clearly seen in the created order. But that does not mean that we have permission to transfer God's glory in terms of his presence, in terms of his holiness into those objects. 
but rather we recognize that his glory has, is set above the heavens. And so that is the place of his throne. That is the place of his, of his uh, permanence, of his presence, of his dwelling place. He has set it there. And so while we talk, we're going to be talking about the creator order we see around us, we recognize that this is a, a work of God. It is not the fullness of God. That there is a fullness of God that is still distant from us and, and will always be to some degree. We will not be able to fully uh, appreciate God because he's just much greater than we can do that even into eternity. Sometimes we think that, well, once I'm in heaven, I'll understand everything. Well, you'd have to be God to do that. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're not quite there, and nor shall we ever be. Uh, and so we get to still have Sunday school in heaven, maybe, if we can get up in the morning, right? Uh, so we'll still be learning in, in heaven. We'll still be growing in our knowledge of who God is, and that will never cease. And that sometimes troubles our mind a little bit. We think, how can that be uh, forever and ever? That is how great he is. But he has set his glory above the heavens. Uh, we are going to look later on in another psalm where it says the, the heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. It's just there and that is real glory while we can see shadows or images of his glory in the world around us. The real glory of God or the fuller glory of God is reserved above the heavens. That's where it is set. That's where it's established. And that's where it dwells. And so we talk about the name of the Lord. Where does it dwell? Well, he dwells in the heaven uh, of heavens. And so above the atmosphere, above the firmament, above the water, above the firmament, there is the set point of God's glory. That that's where everything comes down and directed from there. And so we begin there, recognizing that while we're going to be talking about things that are very familiar to us and very, very intimate to us, because we're going to talk about you, what you are. And we want to be reminded right away at the beginning that while we're going to be talking about all these things that are down here, that this is not the epitome of God's glory. Not even man himself being in the image of God is really that. It is the highest expression of that here among created order, but above that, above that in heaven, is his full glory. And that glory is a penetrating glory, and we find Moses had to be hidden, not only in the cleft of the rock, but also by God's hand, um, because even a rock can't shield you from the glory of God. It is that penetrating of power. And so God himself must shield Moses with his hand and then allows Moses to see just a glimpse of it as he's going. And so when it talks about, the psalmist talks about his name is excellent in all the earth, but you have set, you have set your glory above the heavens. And so above the, the, this realm of a created order sits his fullest glory. And yet we have, are privileged to participate within his work. And there is glory in that. There is elements of who God is and his attributes that are evident to us. And so while we don't worship cre the created order, just like we don't worship the pinnacle of creation, which is man, 
uh, we worship the one who created it. And this is a, not a fine line. This is a very bold, thick, uh, solid line. This isn't a dashed line you can cross back and forth. This is a double stripe, right? Don't cross this understanding that God is so much more and that whatever he has made isn't really for our glory, it is for his. And while we reflect upon it, as the psalmist does here, and perhaps he was doing it while they were at the wine presses, um, that's probably the setting, more than talking about the wine presses, probably the setting. David is somewhere in uh, the wine presses writing, and I don't know whose or where, we're not really told that, um, but he says this is for the end. Uh, and again, the end, remember, is a designation of Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is for Christ. Um, and in the setting where he wrote it as the wine presses uh, is how he describes that in the Septuagint, and it's a Psalm of David. So David is, is in a time. Now, why would it be in the wine presses? Well, the wine presses are usually associated with joyful times. Um, usually you're visiting the wine presses at the harvest. Towards the end of the harvest, you're taking those grapes and you're, and you're crushing them and you're bringing forth the juice and, and we're uh, full of joy. This is harvest time. This is the time of celebration. And it's also a time when the king can enjoy a little bit of God's blessing upon his people, his nation, his land, as well as the rest of his people can enjoy that as well. And so we have this time, an opportunity to reflect on it. You can just imagine them there while the press is running with, uh, of realizing that while we exercise authority on this earth, it is really God that should be getting the glory. So when I go out and I'm harvesting and I'm reaping what I've sown uh, in the soil and God has given me a harvest and abundance that I reflect upon, yes, um, this is... Man has, has a capacity to uh, work the ground. He has a capacity to, to uh, take these product or take these natural things, bring them into products that are useful to us. And that processing of food, which was going on at the wine presses, uh, causes us to again reflect upon not glorifying myself. Look at what a wonderful farmer I am. Look at what a wonderful vineyard dresser I am. Look at the no, it is reflecting upon the wonder of God, that it is wondrous to his name, uh, and he is above us, but he is still the God of us. And so, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, is an appropriate beginning for us to consider when we are in this time of seeing God's hand of blessing even upon our own work. Now we have here in verse 2, uh, which seems almost a little bit out of place, um, but we recognize that uh, man in his sophistication loses contact with his creator. And that seems odd, doesn't it? Seems odd that man, as he develops, uh, distances himself from his creator instead of drawing nearer. You might think, well, it's the well-educated, uh, well-discerning, uh, uh, aged person that realizes who their creator is. And what we find instead is that it's the children that are declaring real exaltation of who God is. Um, that they don't marvel at the works of their own hands. They don't marvel at the cognition of their own minds. 
They don't marvel at any of that. They don't marvel at how they have manipulated creation. Man does that in his maturity, in his sophistication. We take credit for that. What do children do? Well, they trust. They just trust and then they see it and they marvel in the event itself. They don't think of the work that's behind it and around it, uh, in it. They see rather the glory of God being promoted there and, and as, it, as nature just happens around them they, and we have an opportunity that whether that was something that was being experienced and actually witnessed by David as the, as the uh, grapes were being pressed, um, but he sees that and he says, listen, it's out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. You have ordained or established or perfected, is the word Jesus is going to use, strength. That here are the, there, and we're going to have a real uh, contrast presented here, the contrast between these children, and even nursing infants. Now, you don't think of them saying anything, right? Except feed me or change me uh, through crying, right? Uh, we don't think of that, and we don't think of God understanding that language and listening to it and it being statements of praise or trust. Uh, but we find uh, that uh, that's going to be contrasted with God's enemies, that they're enemies of God that need to be silenced, that they are there claiming uh, glory that belongs to God, uh, not giving Him praise for what He has invested in them, but rather thinking that somehow they, because they are the current users of that, have the glory, that somehow we put our name on it. And this is the way of men. And, and to take credit for that which really should only go toward God, that we glorify God for your strength, for your talents, for your uh, provisions, for all of that, for all that surrounds us, for our family, that God is the one who grants us children, God opens and closes the womb, that God does all these things, that we give glory to God, that we don't strut around and, and applaud ourselves for that which we should be applauding God for. And the enemies of God will consistently do that. They will want to just write God out of the script of their life, that he had nothing to do with this. And they will state boastful things that make it evident that they think that they have done it by themselves, that somehow they have lifted themselves out of the quagmire, out of the mud, out of the primordial ooze and have made us into our, something superior to amoebas, slightly superior. So somehow we do that. Do you see how we write God out because we do not want to give him glory and thus make ourselves the enemies of God and the enemy of his people? And so we find that God says, I'm going to silence you, and I'm going to silence you <laughs> by being louder than you, I'm going to silence you out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. Unless you think that the enemies of God are not religious people, I invite you to turn to Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, this is where Christ is going to quote this verse. Um, there's something going on. Christ says... Uh, Arrived in the city, in the triumphal entry, we come to, uh, oh, let's pick up in 
Verse 6, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set the him on them. And a very great multitude spread out their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees, spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And then, of course, Jesus comes in and he turns over the money changers. <laughs> Jesus went into the temple of the God, drove out all those who bought and sold the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. That means they looked down on the whole thing and said to him, Do you hear what these, and let's remind ourselves who the these are, the these are the children. Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. He then left them and went out of the of, the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Um, very interesting that the, what do children do? Well, they weren't the ones that originated on the outside as Jesus was entering. That was when the palm branches and the adults were yelling out, Hosanna, bless you who comes in the name of the Lord, and, and, and Hosanna, the son of David. That's what, they were heard that, and the children were there. They watched their, their parents. They watched their grandparents. They watched their uncles and aunts out there doing this, and they were just caught up in this. And what do children do? They say what they hear. And they recognize who Jesus is. And they said, well, if he's going to, if, if that's how our parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, and such are declaring him, uh, we're going to not stop just because we come into a temple. Children tend to say things in different locations than adults, right? Because they're not as sophisticated as us. I'm going to use that word a lot. And by the way, sophisticated means sophists claiming to be wise, sophistry. So, out of, but they just going to keep saying, Hosanna, the son of David. They're just going to keep saying it, not just out there as he comes into the gates, not just on the way into the temple, but they're in the temple area and they're still crying it out. Because this is an exciting time. They're all caught up in it. And it's the children that persist in the praise of God, even while it seems that the adults have desisted by from it as they came into the temple. Because, you know, it's the temple you have to put on your special. You can't just yell things like that in the temple, you know. And um, come in, and instead they come in, and they're going to keep calling out what they heard. It says, crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They're, they're having a great time. They're not ready to give up on this party, on this celebration of Christ, of the Christ, of Jesus' arrival, the son of David. If this is the king of kings and lord of lords, we're going to cry out Hosanna all the way into the temple. We're going to persist in calling it out. Um, there is just this tenacity in children. Once they lay hold of something as truth, that we have to educate them out of, unfortunately. We think that's our job. Most children are able to grasp more significant spiritual truths uh, on a genuine, 
faith level than most of us well-educated, sophisticated adults. We say, well, it means that, but then we use cultural arguments, we use all these other things to excuse ourselves from actually being childlike in our faith. And so we go back to the psalmist, and, and you can imagine in the celebratory events of the wine press activity that the children are excited. It's an exciting time in, a, in an agricultural setting, in agrarian society. This was the highlight, and the children are caught up in that, and they're excited. Even, even the littlest ones are excited. And so out of the ma- their mouth is, is strength, the strength of God. Because they're going to recognize the things of creation around them. They're going to recognize the benefits we receive from created order. They're going to communicate that with an openness of recognizing that they didn't make any of it. Right? They didn't build the wine press. They didn't harvest the grapes. They didn't plant the grapes. They didn't do anything with the grapes. They're just there enjoying the grapes. Grape juice at this point. And so they're just there. And, and, and it's that whole perspective of trust and of recognizing that, that I have contributed nothing. And yet I am the benefactor of it. And I can rejoice and be glad and happy and run around, you know, until I get in trouble. You have to put my nose on the wall. Um, but I can run around and I can praise God. And David must have evidenced that. And he says, listen, this is the strength of God. And we are called to that kind of faith in Scripture, unless you have the faith of a child, right? And so how are we going to have that? Well, the psalmist is going to lead us in understanding that. It is, does not require you to set aside your intellect, but rather to set aside the pride our intellect often carries in it. And that is sophistication. And so how does God silence the enemy? It's by those who are dependent upon God and rejoicing in God, and even nursing infants have the capacity to do that because they're 100% dependent and recognize it. There is no pride. There is no um, uh, arrogance in there. There is no self-importance. They recognize their dependence, and that dependence, the, the world might say, oh, that's, that's weakness, and God's Word says something very different. It says that's strength. So out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, God has perfected, endured, established strength. That dependence is not a weakness, but a strength. Am I dependent upon God? Am I willing to recognize that everything I have, everything I've accomplished, everything that that has kept me alive and that I look forward to is from Him and to Him? And that attitude, that perspective of life which is childlike and, and mature, sophisticated people will tell you, oh, that's foolishness. Well, the foolishness of men is the wisdom of God, and the wisdom of God is foolishness to men, right? Foolishness of God, um, men can't even comprehend. So we look at this, we say, well, these are the strength that shuts the mouths of the wicked, yes. And they are precious in the sight of God. And so these children in the temple that had followed the crowd in got caught up in the excitement of it and the excitement persisted with them while it desisted 
with the multitude, including the disciples. And we need that persistence of faith, of childlike faith, that it would persist, that it would go from not just out there in the one event, but that it might move itself into places even where it might seem like it's inappropriate. Well, who decides what's appropriate? Well, the, the adults, the religious adults, what were they doing in the temple? Well, they were doing some pretty inappropriate things. They were making money. Well, that's a mature thing, right? That's adulthood when you know you can make money and have money and spend money and, and you know how to, you got this, you know, this uh, hustle going on over here and uh, these guys really are getting it done, right? Jesus Christ comes in and says, throws them out. You are the evil ones. And what do they point to? They say those children that are persisting in giving glory to God, they're the evil ones. Do you hear what they're saying here in the temple? They're not saying Hosanna to the... to. God above. They're seeing Hosanna, the son of David. They're, they're praising you in the temple. Well, they appropriate, wasn't it? That was God in the temple for the first time in a very long time. And here we think the sophisticated people with all of their intelligence and spiritual rationality over here uh, making money off of their faith, quote unquote, um, these are the evil ones in God's sight. We would call them the smart ones. They're the ones that figured out how to make this deal work for them. It was the children who come in and quote-unquote inappropriately and declare these truths. And so when we come to this, uh, David saying, listen, this is the nature of children is their dependency and their persistence. They're going to persist in, in this unless we educate them otherwise. Because we want to teach them that dependency is a weakness when God declares it a strength. And so we ought to be dependent upon God. We ought to be dependent upon one another. That is the strength of the church. That's the strength of your relationship with God. That I'm dependent upon Him. And the world says that's weak. So who are you going to believe? So let's look at God's perspective. Why should we understand ourselves to be dependent upon God? Because everything that you claim is yours, you didn't originate. And I tell people regularly in economics classes, if I, anyone ever invites me to talk on economics, I just tell them everything is free. Everything is free. The only thing we charge you for is time. Money is just an exchange of time. That's all it is. Everything else is free. Where did the first seeds come from? The plants that God created. None of us have ever made one from nothing. Oh, we've taken this seed from this plant, this plant, we made hybrids, and then we put our name on it like, we are, like we're magicians. Right? And we, we, we try to manipulate it, but the fact is that if we didn't have the original, if we don't have the parent tree, we can't make a tree. And we didn't make the tree, and the trees were here. 
all the copper, gold, silver, aluminum, everything that's these precious metals, they're all free. They're just in the ground. You didn't put them there. I didn't put them there. Ancient man didn't put them there. Aliens didn't put them there. They've been there since creation. Certainly at least since the flood. They're just free. They're just laying there in the ground. What are you paying for? Oh, now we start to understand that God has given us everything. The air around us, the rain that falls upon us, water itself. We can't make it. We can manipulate it. We can claim ownership of it. But fundamentally, it was granted to us. We are 100% dependent upon what God has gifted us with. And that's what we want to look at. So we can imagine David at the wine presses and just sitting there seeing the abundance and the joy and all the activity and realizing we got to make sure that we recognize that this is all from God's hand. We are the benefactors of His grace. And so we're going to praise His name. And so we begin to join the children. Let's join the babes. Let's join the nursing infants and start doing some good thinking instead of worldly sophistication. When I consider your heavens, the work of your hands, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained or set in place in, in, in order, uh, I look at that part of creation. And I say, well, those are pretty phenomenal. They're far above us. They're larger than us. They're, they're, uh, we can see it as a clock. It's all running up there. We can, we can, uh, we can see the, the evidence of God's work there. There's a light to rule the day. There's a light to rule the night. There's the stars. There's the, the courses that they run. And we see all of that evidence for us. And we can say, that's amazing. That's incredible. God has set that. And that's just the work of his fingers. All right. And, and he just puts those in place. He's set them into their uh, positions and into their courses. And they run their courses, the Bible says. And then having considered that, when you think about how wonderful all that is, and then you come to man. God didn't put the moon, the stars, He did not put any of that in control. You talked in Sunday school about astrology. You know, astrologers believe the sun, the moon, and the stars, they control your life. <laughs> what a bunch of hogwash. Okay? You see how upside down it is? God did not give the moon and the stars any authority over you. Yes, are they up there? Yes, are they great? Are they run without our... We didn't wind this clock. We don't keep it running. Uh, we only learn from it. We can, we can study it. We can, we can appreciate it. We can, we can set the seasons by when we should plant, when we should harvest. We can do all that, um, but we're not controlling any of what's going on up there. But neither is it controlling us. But then he says, listen, when I think about how wonder, the wonder of all this in the heavens, then I come to man. What is man? That you gave him so much attention. 
And that's essentially what the psalmist is saying. You, why, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man we're going to talk about is Jesus Christ, that you visit him uh, for you have made him, and we're going to talk about a little lower than the angels, and have crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And the balance of the psalm is all about man. And talking about what God has invested in man. And what is it? What is it about us that gave that, that you decide to put so much attention on us? I mean, all these other things are bigger, they're grander, they're they're in, in scope and, and in the manner in which they run, yet you have done something spectacular toward man. And rather than us strutting around like, look at us, we're the God. No, we, it should humble us. And that's what the psalmist is calling. This is glory to God. What is man that you've paid him so much attention? We come to a verse with a word that um, is translated differently than every other place it's used in the Hebrew, and that is that you've made him a little lower than in our text and, and in the Septuagint in the Greek, uh, and in the New Testament uses the word angels. The word is Elohim. Does that sound familiar to any of you? That is a name for God. But the Jewish mind was so concerned about thinking that man is just a little lower than God that they couldn't write God there. And so they translated, and, and they have always, from what, as far back as I can find, they've always said, oh, this is angels. But the word is Elohim, is God. Everywhere else translated God. You have made him a little lower. And when we come to this and we, start in, and we start to think of Elohim, you have made him a little lower than Elohim, and we start thinking of Elohim as being God. Wow, suddenly we start going, hmm, that is true. Out of all of the created order, only man is made like God in some respect, in terms of God-likeness or image-bearing. We are made like God, more than anything else in all creation. And yet here a man worshiping the sun, worshiping the moon, worshiping the stars, and God says, I've made you greater than those. Worshiping rocks. Think about that. You know, I, it doesn't even move by itself. You know, I need to carry it and paint it and set it on a pedestal, and then someone else can knock it down. You know, we're worshiping rocks. You know, I made you, we're worshiping animals. The Egyptians worshiped animals and ridiculous things like frogs and, and scarabs and things like that. And, and, you know, I've been to India and they dress up their cow and all the fancy things and parade them through the street. They worship the cow and that's why they won't eat beef. Um, and so they worship creatures. Instead of the God who made us above the creatures, we treat them like they're our gods. That somehow we're dependent upon them because we refuse to acknowledge our dependence upon the one who created us to be superior to everything else in creation with the one exception, and that is Elohim. 
We are made lower than Elohim. And that's a plural of El, which is God. It's a plural God, the, the us of Genesis. Let us make man in our image. And so we are made this way. And so God has designed us as the one part of creation that is most entirely like him. We carry his image. And as we studied some a uh, couple of Sunday nights ago, not only did we have our, his image, now we also have a, a moral conscience that is derived from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, make us even more like God than how he created us. And so we had the capacity for that. And then when we ate that tree, we, we gained that function. And now we have, uh, we're even more like God. And so um, out of all the created order, we're the only ones that get dressed in the morning. Why? Because we know good from evil. Your animals don't know that. The rocks don't know that. The stars don't know it. They don't have that moral capacity. And they don't, neither are they image bearers, so they don't have faith. They don't have the capacity that you have of having a will, a liberty to choose and to set your own destiny. And, and that's why we don't call, you know, uh, we don't call animals in cages slaves. Nor do we call them prisoners. Call them pets. Isn't that funny? Because they don't have the image of God upon them. But we recognize that when I do that to another man, that this is a moral violation of who he is and how God created him. What is man that God gave him so much of his attention that he made him so close to like he is himself. He has made him just a little lower than Elohim. And has invested, not only that, he made it crowned him with glory and honor. So of all the created order that you want to look at, you don't have to look any farther than yourself to see the pinnacle of God's created power. That as you look around, you're at the wine press and you're excited about the harvest and and all of this, and you're looking up at the, and, and it's probably evening by the time he's writing this because, you know, that's when the partying starts because the wine presses are going at it and, and the children have a great time and we're sitting back on our lounges looking up at the sun, moon and the stars. There's no reference to the sun here. So I'm convinced that it's probably in the late evening, harvest time, looking up there and we're saying, God has invested in us so much that I can look out there, but I don't even have to look out there. I can just look at what is man. Look at how what God has invested in man. Look at how distinct we are from all the rest of creation, that we and we alone have been crowned with this glory, this honor, being in the image of God and being given uh, the instruction to have dominion and subdue the earth, which is what he's going to bring up in the next thing. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. These are God's things that God put into our charge. And he made us sufficiently like him that we could have dominion, that is rule, sovereignty, over the things of this earth. We have responsibility. And with, with capacity comes responsibility. If you say that man doesn't have a capacity of will, he doesn't have a capacity of, of sovereignty, self-sovereignty, then he has no responsibility either. With capacity comes responsibility. So because God has given us 
this capacity to be like him, a little lower. Um, we're not gods. But we are the most godlike creature on the earth and in heaven. Even comparison to the angels, I would contend. That they, and you guys know that, that I don't believe at all that the angels are in the image of God and that they do not have what we have been granted. And so we find that, that we have been given this glory, this honor, and how easy it is to just surround ourselves with mirrors. Right? And think that it's all about me. So everywhere I look, it's me, 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 me. I just want to be surrounded by mirrors to reflect my own wonderful glory of what a great thing humans are. And we'll look at what we can achieve. Look at what we have done. Well, we destroy our babies. We don't even know whether we're male or female. We, we commit suicide. We murder each other. We, we're, we don't, well, we don't want to notice those things. But we're sitting here. We planted a vineyard. We dressed the vineyard. We've harvested the vineyard. We built a wine press. We're pressing the, the, the grapes. We're producing this juice. And we're just ready to congratulate ourselves, right? For how brilliant we are. Instead of saying, wow, what is man? That we have so much of God's attention. That he has graced us with so much compared to the rest of the created order. And so he has given us the dominion. There are his hands who have done this work, but he has put them under our feet. You put all things under his feet. All the sheep, all, it goes through. Um, and some really strange things here. Birds of the air are under our feet. That seems odd. Seems like they're always above our heads. No, they're under your authority. Fish of the sea. Those are the scariest things. In the, well, birds are pretty scary. I mean, I, I would not want a bird bigger than me around. Because um, they're vicious. I've raised enough birds. Just watching ducks and chickens is frightening. If if I could, if um, as how they treat each other and what they do if something runs in their pen that they think is delicious, um, it's it, I would not want one of those bigger than me. But we have dominion over it. And then the fish, boy. Do you ever think that sharks are afraid of humans? God says he put the fear of man in all the created order. And so we find that, that even in the ocean, we are called upon to have dominion, to subdue it. It's under our authority. We have sovereignty over that. We have a right. I'm going to use, you know that I don't like to use that word. We have a sovereign right to every fish in the sea. But with that, Glory with that honor, with that capacity comes responsibility. Recognizing that we do not have zero accountability in the exercise of that because it is an inherited right from God who can take it away because if we abuse it. And so we come to this and we say, well, what is man? We have all this Authority, we have all this dominion, we have all this honor, all this glory. And it would be so easy to puff ourselves up. But God says, but the psalmist says, Oh Lord, our Lord, 
How excellent is your name in all the earth? You don't have to go very far. Consider what God has given you. The intelligence that you have. I love hearing scientists talk about how smart some animals are. They're almost as smart as humans. How many of you heard that on nature shows? Their brain is, you know, dolphins. You know, they're really, they're smart creatures. And 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 another, oh, this is a smart. You know, pigs are supposed to be a smart creature. Um, we eat them. Who's smarter? Okay, we raise them. We get, we eat them. There is no comparison. There's a chasm of intelligence between created order and us. And I know that Balaam's donkey talked to him, and the serpent talked to Eve, and and uh, but those are rarities of God's intervention uh, is evident there. God has granted us so much. We just have to look at man. And I don't have to. I don't have to parade them through the whole universe or through the stars. I don't have to pray them through all the mountains and explain all that. I don't have to take them to the geology class. I don't have to do all of that. I can just take them and say, consider yourself. Look what God has granted you. You can believe things you've never seen. You can learn things that you've never experienced. You can choose your own way. Self-determination. And you can rule everything around you. So that when, I'm, when I've got my land and I've done my agricultural work on there and, I'm, and it's producing something, a, a product that I'm now consuming for my enjoyment and for my sustenance, um, I've subdued it. Now, have we kind of made it hard on ourselves? Yeah, because of sin. And I'm pretty regularly out here saying, oh, Lord, if it's not weeds, it's insects. If it's not insects, it's disease. And why have we done this to ourselves? We are truly cursed because of our sin. But prior to that, and even after that, we must recognize, wow, God has made us spectacularly different than the rest of creation. And the glory goes to Him. Oh, Lord, our Lord. How excellent is your name in all the earth. When I think about man and the attention you've given to him, I have to give you the glory. A sophisticated man has surrounded himself by selective funny mirrors like the fun houses used to have. That's what we surrounded ourselves by and thinking that somehow that those are who we are instead of seeing our sinfulness and the horrible detriment that they've done to all that God has invested in us. He's given us so much. And so it is not to our glory, it is to God's, and even in the culmination of a season's work, which is what goes on at the wine press, a culmination of a life's work, what should be our conclusion how excellent is your name in all the earth, including this little piece of land that has my name on the deed, <laughs> like I made it. No, I didn't make it. God did. I'm just managing it. I'm stewarding it. 
I am sovereign over it for a season because of what God has invested in us. The idea that men have self-determination and has authority and things like that does not detract from God unless we choose to steal from God the glory that is inherent in what he has given us. But notice that while his glory is set above the heavens, he says, you have been endowed, you have been um, crowned with glory and honor. What are you going to do with the glory and honor God has given you? It is no mistake that when we get to heaven, one of the scenes that is painted for us is that we cast our crowns before him. And all that we would do that today, that we would take the glory and honor that he has crowned us with and recognize, oh Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. For this is just a dim reflection of the glory that's yours that is set in heaven. Great introduction to this kind of psalm. that reflects upon who God is, what He has done around us that we might joyfully reflect upon it. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank You again for all that You've done for us. And we readily acknowledge today that it is all from Your hand, from Your grace, mercy, goodness, that you have given us life and more than that, abundance. And even more than that, you've given us authority here. Lord, we do not claim this is our own invention. And so we take what glory and honor you've crowned us with and we acknowledge its origin that it came from your hand. And we thank you for the attention you have granted us and the opportunity for intimacy that we can have with you because of it. And we marvel. Help us to not only recognize what you've done in us, but recognize the great value that you have invested in humanity that we might honor life and the people around us as image bearers of our Creator who also share the right to dominion, self-determination, the subjugation of all things. Lord, help us be guarded from the pride that that might bring and recognize the responsibility it carries and glorify your name as we exercise it with your grace in mind. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.